Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the occupier's champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to cressa.com Portland to connect with the Portland advisory team. From that cast creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey everyone, welcome back to PDX Executive Podcast. It's been a minute. I'm trying. I'm still trying to get my feet underneath me for 2023, like probably a lot of you are. But uh, I'm excited to have my next guest, who we, I talked to right in dead center of the pandemic in like April or May of 2020. So Matt Scott, who wrote a new book, The High Growth Nonprofit, who's also the founder and CEO of uh, Agency Cosmic. Hey, Matt, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yeah, I was. Guys, I was just thinking about this. It was like kind of April, May. 2020 and we hopped on zoom and did this and yeah i think we, we were are. both scrambling to like support uh just trying to figure out how to help how to help nonprofits and small businesses get yeah. ppp funding and yeah. it was a crazy time <laughs> yeah well, and just to kind of reflect back on that for a second i've intentionally kind of blocked that out but i've probably the past month i've kind of tried to reflect back on that was like for me that's pretty existential because I bring people together in person, you know, for my main kind of gig. So well, we made it through. <laughs> yeah. Likewise, I am too. I think it was a pivotal moment for almost just about every business and was certainly for ours as well. And yeah. it changed the way we do business dramatically. So it's kind mm. of crazy time. <laughs> well, let's get into the book because I think that some, some probably things you help clients with during that time kind of translated or came out in this book, right? So could you just tell us a little bit about you know writing the book and a little little broad overview of it, and we'll dig into it. Yeah, the first thing I'll share is uh, a book took me twice as long to write as I thought it would. <laughs> I was a little overly ambitious, but yeah, I just I sought to you know after a decade of working at high growth nonprofits and helping literally hundreds of nonprofit leaders quickly grow their revenue, I just thought, gosh, maybe maybe we could help others, you know, um, through through a book, and so we just. I just sat down with a with a notebook and started writing out all the the lessons you know that I've learned over the last decade and some from successes, some from failures, and tried to try to put pen down to paper in a in a way that was fast and easily digestible and actionable for for leaders um, who are short on time and money, which is just about everybody in yeah. my space. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I lo- I read a lot of business books and get uh, what I love about your book is. It gets right to the point. And I think you even mentioned that kind of in, in the, the preface of the book is, you know, you give kind of the top two takeaways at the beginning of the chapter and then go from there. And I think as someone who's very busy as a leader out there, that's going to be much appreciated. And it's no yeah. bluff. So I, I really appreciate that just to let you know. Oh, I'm glad that I'm glad that landed when I used to work at Team Rubicon, a nonprofit that 
you know, repurposes military veterans to respond to disasters. Mm. We had so much military culture and jargon that was kind of instilled. And one of them was bluff, which is just, you know, bottom line up front. And so I kind of took that and was like, yeah, like if you read nothing else, I think you could just read the two takeaways from each chapter and the title and think, cool. All right. Ready to roll. <laughs> bluff. I love that. Um, so let's, let's get into it. I think the thing you started off, the book is really about kind of this, you know, it's overused a little bit, but you, you phrase it differently, the, the, the growth mindset. And I think a lot of specifically maybe bigger nonprofits, like, Hey, we're looking to grow 5% a year yep. or even 10%. And you're, you're kind of like, stop, right? Let's yeah. reframe that. So if you could tell us a little bit about that. I think the, the thing is, is like the incremental growth mindset. It, the, the reality is I found you don't actually have to do anything differently. If you want to grow by five or 10% each year. You just have to do what you're currently doing a little bit better. <laughs> but if you force a resource constrained environment, so if you force your team to, you know, just simply answer this question, how do I double my resources with, or how do I double revenue with half the resources over the next three years? That forces innovation and creativity and ruthless prioritization. And you simply can't just optimize your way into doubling. You have to think about doing your business differently. And we've taken like dozens and dozens of nonprofit leaders through that exercise. Yeah, I think the thing that surprised me too, Dan, the most was that it's the larger nonprofits that are so stuck in an incremental growth mindset. The, the smaller ones are just trying to survive or right. they're thinking so boldly. But the larger ones... They have more to lose and many more stakeholders to align. So that's yeah. sort of our thought process around it. Yeah. yeah, and it translates to if you're in a for-profit too, right? I think getting back to what you said, you set the scene in the book of, hey, we're coming in after the holidays, having our first kind of meeting for the, the new year and you know, setting the table like, what do we need to, like you said, grow double or 3x in the next you know, 18 months? And everybody's just kind of, blanks blanks stare so yeah I, I i love that and you know tell some examples you you put some examples in the book but of just working mm -hmm. with really large nonprofits and organizations and yeah to accomplish that just by shifting that yeah i think right. i think like you know this is pdx executive forum so i'll share a local example with with when we were working with mercy corps we were approached uh, at a time when you know there was a lot of economic uncertainty it was in the middle of another presidential uh you know, campaign. And on one side, we had a president who was talking about really limiting um, the role of government and spending domestically, right? And kind of a US first mindset. And Mercy Corps employs, you know, over 5,000 people and operates in 100 plus countries and delivers humanitarian services to some of the toughest, you know, places in the world. And so they were pretty nervous about what that meant, because despite being a $500 million organization, 90% of their funding comes from grants, government funded. Right grants. So they kind of approached us with this idea of like, we want to grow unrestricted revenue, which was about $50 million rather. Okay. And as we dug into it with their leadership team, I uncovered this incremental growth mindset and, and kind of flipped them on the head asking that just that simple question. Um, you know, how, how would we go about doubling revenue over the next couple of years if, if we had half the resources? And, um, and then I don't know if you remember, but this was right around that time when, when Mercy Corps had a, a pretty frightening, you know, story break that some 30 plus years right. ago. Yeah. yeah. Their co-founder had, uh, 
you know, abused children and, and the news came out. And so it was a very scary time because uh, everybody who worked at Mercy Corps, who I encountered was, was thinking about the victim, was thinking about uh, the tragedy around the incident. They were also really concerned about the impact that it would have on their ability to fundraise um, and, and their ability to continue to do some very impactful work. And so, yeah, like their CDMO called and said, well, I'm not sure what we're going to do. And I said, we've got the blueprint for it. You know, yeah. unfortunately, that hypothetical situation that we thought of half the resources may become a reality. And so they leaned in and had the best fundraising year ever. They, wow. they nearly doubled their unrestricted revenue despite all that uncertainty. And their team just uh, leaned into to new ways of thinking. Yeah, it was a it was an incredible time for their organization, and I think it proved that the organization had um, had a lot of folks who were dedicated to the mission and willing to take yeah. big, bold, calculated risk. That's fantastic. I mean, the story behind that to hear you know them going through that, and then they were able to still kind of grow to help their mission. That's that's something I didn't know, and I think you also kind of point in the book like your advice is for nonprofits is to stop thinking like a traditional nonprofit, right? Yep. To like borrow some things from the for-profit world. And, uh, you know, what did you mean by that? What are one or two examples of that? Yeah, I, this is really at the heart of why I started Cosmic because like taking best-in-class for-profit methods and applying them to nonprofits, right? And uh, so many examples, but some that come to mind that are just so practical, right? That are so useful. Is like, we, we do this with a lot of organizations. Um, so in the consulting practice, for-profit consulting practice like Cosmic, we have something that's called utilization ratio, which essentially takes your billable time divided by all your total time, right? And it's important not to think about it as billable time is good versus bad, you know? <laughs> uh, Non-billable time is like PTO, making sure the team is refreshed, uh, you know, professional development, making sure that they're uh, inspired and, and up-to-date on whatever's new, right? It's administrative time, like, we gather our team twice a year for a hot start, which is our way of aligning against our one-page strategic plan and our priorities and talking about what's working, what's not, what needs to change. Um, all that's non-billable time, though. And so one thing that we've brought to nonprofit clients that has truly changed the game for productivity is like, okay, where are you all spending your time? You know, Because that's one of your biggest assets. And then determining, well, what is your utilization ratio, your sort of productive versus non-productive time, um, or your billable versus non-billable time. And by thinking like an actual for-profit agency, as opposed mm. to a marketing team inside of a nonprofit, right. then you can begin to like really think about how to optimize your, your limited time and where to spend that uh, time. So... That's just one example of something that we've taken from a for-profit business and applied it to the nonprofits, and and it it has really fundamentally shifted the productivity within the organization. Matt, and that is such good advice. I mean, I've worked in a lot of corporate marketing teams on for-profit companies, and they don't even use that, right? right. So just like that, is, it cuts across any uh, anybody really for profit or nonprofit yeah, yeah if you're in, internal you can i guess you can lose sight of that so yep. kind of bringing that and i mean that's the value of someone like you and your team to to align folks on that because yeah sometimes you, you do just lose focus of of why 
you're here. <laughs> I'll share, I'll share another, yeah. another practical yeah. one that just came to mind for me. Yeah. It's like, that works for anybody, for-profit, nonprofit, everybody, right? So this is one of my favorite things. It's called BAUs or business as usual. And essentially, you know, people have all of their different skill sets, right? So um, I actually learned this when I was working in, in finance. So, you know, there's a certain number of days that it takes to close the books. You got to reconcile your books. You got to, you know, check accounts and all that kind of stuff. That's sort of your business as usual. So what you do is you gather your team around a whiteboard and you say, okay, we're going to list out all the things that we have to do. They're the non-sexy things that have to just get done no matter what. So for nonprofits, it's things like sending donor acknowledgement letters or merging contact records, right? Mm-hmm. For for-profits, like we have to run payroll, we have to send invoices, you know, all these different things. And what you would do is you assign like who is the primary person responsible and who's the secondary person responsible. And one really cool thing is like if you only have one person listed, then you have a single point of failure. And a single point of failure is very risky for a business. And so you need to think about like, how do I eliminate single points of failure? And you can do that through cross-training. You can do that through outside contract support. You can do that through hiring if it's a long-term permanent need. But by looking at all your BAUs and ex- and determining what's an acceptable threshold, right? Like mm-hmm. how much are we willing to tolerate as a BAU? And then now you've combined these two tool sets where you have I know exactly how much time people are spending where, and I know exactly on which task they're working on. You begin to understand like how you've eliminated single points of failure, but you've also identified where people are spending time and where time is available to work on special projects. I I mean, that resonates so much. I've been on a board of a nonprofit and hey, for you, everybody that's out there working nonprofit or on a board, it is so hard. It's hard work every day. And it's, um, you know, I have so much respect and that single point of failure thing resonates so much, but also for small businesses. Yes. I mean, it's the same. I am so guilty of that for my own business, but I talk to, you know, a lot of folks who run even midst, you know, maybe they're 50 people, right? That's, yeah. I think it breaks with those kind of things you're talking about. It breaks at seven. It breaks at 21. It breaks at 50. When you start looking at like where these critical points are in yeah. your people scale, it's kind of interesting because, yeah, that's something I've learned as a as a leader of a really fast growing company and it's yeah. hiring quickly. It's like, okay, what do I have to let go of? What do I need to stay in control of? Where, yeah. how does that shift over time as as new requirements are are, are loaded yeah. in? Right. So all of that is like. It's a, it's a good exercise to go through with your team, I think, annually to determine if you've got the right people in the right seat. This is a great segue to something I read in your book that I, I said wasn't a surprise you put it in there, but I think it's really valuable is telling it straight. And you put use this term, I think it was Ariana Huffington coin, compassionate directness. Yeah. Let's so, so talk about that. Compassionate directness is one of my favorite um, I'd like, I think I, I'd like to think I came up with this myself. I haven't read about it anywhere else, but I'm, I'm the internet is wide and deep, you know, so I'm sure it exists, but yeah. Compassionate directness is like learning as you grow as a leader, as a manager, um, and just as a, per- a person, right? Directness is, can be scary. It can be really scary to be direct. Um, you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. You don't want to offend somebody. You don't know how to be direct and express your thoughts and emotions and 
you know, all that. But I've learned like over time that directness is really critical if you're trying to build a fast growing organization because you don't have time for uh, misalignment, miscommunication or things like that. And then there's the compassionate side of things, right? When you're first learning how to be direct, you can kind of be a jerk. You know, you sound like a jerk. And it's, you don't want to do that either. You want to be combine the compassion and the directness together. So I'll share an example, like they really changed, changed my thinking, right? So when I was first getting started in professional, I ran, um, I ran pretty, I was like an assistant administrator at a skilled nursing and assisted living campus. And in the, in the year that I survived there and it was terrible, we fi- I had to fire and hire like over 50 people. Wow. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was, I was not direct, nor was I compassionate. <laughs> and then fast forward, like, you know, running Cosmic and learning how to hire people. At, you know, this is de- more than a decade after leading teams inside of a nonprofit too. We hired somebody who was just such a great person, but they were not the right person for Cosmic right now. The pace at which we needed to have them be able to, to run just didn't match up. And they were actually not that direct during the interview process. They made it seem like their experience better aligned with our culture. And we've actually learned how to be more direct in the hiring process because mm-hmm. of it. Try to dig into like the 5%, you know, like the 95% is where most people talk, but the 5%, like, you know, is like the, yeah. the interesting part. So anyway, you know, I had to let this person go very quickly. And, um, you know, I had a, I formed a friendship very quickly with this person. And so it was difficult, but I just shot it to him straight. But I also was very compassionate with them and um, direct. And my lawyer probably would hate the fact that I <laughs> overshared during an exit. But I, I like to lean into that kind of risk. Like, you know, mm-hmm. so I, uh, I shot it to him straight. And I shared with him exactly where I thought his strengths were and his, where his weaknesses are and how we couldn't really support his weaknesses at this moment in time. And Mm. I failed him as a leader for not seeing that in the hiring process, but we wished him well. And, and, and then later he commented like on a LinkedIn post and raved about his experience being terminated at cosmic. And Mm. that's just an example, I guess, compassionate directness. Well, I think people appreciate, I mean, that's a good example of someone who, you know, had to go through that, unfortunately for both sides and still came out of it. Like, Hmm. you know, there's some takeaways, right? And, yeah. and you know, you and I have been in the the game for a long time. I think that's appreciated whether, what, no matter what side of it we're on, You're on. right? Yeah. I mean, maybe we're from a client, we're being kind of, uh, thanks for, you know, your partnership and we're, we're moving on. And I think that is, uh, hopefully we see more of that because, you know, it's unfortunate, you know, when you read in the news, some, some of these tech layoffs and stuff, and I don't know how, you know, I, I yeah. I, I, I'm, you know, from outside of what's going on, but it, some of it seems like it's it was not handled that way, right? So yeah, yeah, and I think the thing the thing that's so obvious, but something I reflected on later in life is as hard as it is to fire somebody, and it is probably one of the worst parts of the job. If it's not, then you know there might be something wrong with you. But <laughs> um, it's much harder to be fired. Like, you know, you have this single point of failure potentially for your home, for your household, for your family, your income, your livelihood, your ego, your everything, right? Yeah. As a business owner, I, I've been able to think about how as difficult as it is to fire someone, it's harder to receive that news. And two, 
I have a responsibility and a duty to the rest of the people who work here and the clients that we serve. So it's my job, unfortunately, to, to yeah, hold people accountable or make decisions that are difficult for the business. Um, but if you're compassionate and direct, I find that best case, you become friends with the person. You know, worst case, you, you don't you don't leave any ambiguity out there and you make yeah. them feel okay. Yeah, I mean, for me, just, you know, reading your book, I think this is one of the most critical things you covered, to be honest with you, that I took away from. I mean, everything was great, but I'm assuming for you to get to that point, it took a while. Yeah, it took a while and it took a lot of, uh, you know, when you're first starting out, I've never had the issue of not thinking that I was like the smartest person in the room, <laughs> um, which is, a, you know, not a good thing. That's not a good quality. <laughs> and, you know, when you're starting out, like, it's like, okay, I'm here and I'm in this position. And, uh, you know, over time, you you learn that, like, there's all kinds of reasons why you might be there where someone else isn't. And it's, and it's no different, you know, but or it's no more valuable, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But um yeah, I think I've I've learned to like the more compassionate and direct I am the earlier on in someone's tenure, the mm. less likely that it's not going to work out. Mm. So if we do that during the interview process, during clients, right? We've had to fire clients and we've been fired by clients. It's rare. It's rarer and rarer and rarer because earlier we would take on any work that we needed to. And now we've figured out this is what we're really gifted at. This is who yeah. we're who you know, and so as you become more confident in in being able to express what your superpower is and yeah. what you need out of somebody, just I think that that's one of the secret ingredients to exponential growth um, with any organization. Yeah, and that diverged from the book a little bit. I mean, from just running a business standpoint, I've learned that lesson too. Is uh, like you said, getting I guess. Whenever you start something, yeah, you're just, it's kind of survival mode a little bit. And mm -hmm. then as you get going, you, you kind of figure out who you want to partner with really as it comes down yep. to whether they're hiring you or you're hiring them. So I think that's a super hard lesson to learn. I think it cannot be, you know, I like to hear it as much as I can. So for, for you saying that, yes, yeah. it's super for anybody on a profit or running a small business or even a, you know, to a certain extent, a larger business too. Right. So it takes takes time to learn that. We all learn it the hard way sometimes. So. Exactly. Exactly. I agree. And it, it gets, um, it gets easier and easier over time. It's, it almost feels like a place of privilege, honestly, to even say that, right? Cause like, I'm not worried about business in the same way I was in the early days or when COVID hit and 65% of our pipeline vanished overnight, yeah. terrified, right? Um, having to lay off a friend, very troubling, right? But then ultimately yeah. growing through that experience, both personally and as a business is really critical. But I think I think the reality is the more confident you can be in identifying what your what your niche is within yeah. an organization or within the market as a whole, then the better and better you're going to get at becoming the choice when it comes to leading a team, being a manager, or a business serving a specific uh, mm -hmm. sector. You want to be the choice. And the only way to be the choice is to figure out where your your superpower is where your identity lies, mm -hmm. right? And like, and that's hard to hear early on because you're just trying yeah. to, be, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to feed yourself or whatever. But for sure, yeah. and I think, and it gets back to you know your book as you kind of uh, one of the uh, the the last kind of points you make is 
finding those superpowers, right? And really, yep. just like you're saying, uh, focusing on them. And in the nonprofit world, you know, that could be, I'll, I'll hand it off to, to you to, to tell us more about what some of those could be in the nonprofit world. Um, so. Yeah. Well, I think in the nonprofit world and any team, I'll share from my own personal experience on this as well as like, um, I like to think a lot of times about 30,000 foot visionary role. And that's something I'm pretty good at. Like I like to look out. I like to start projects. I don't particularly like to finish them. I like walking into a very high stakes room, like mm. facilitation. So when we facilitate a strategic planning workshop, I love it. It's like high stakes poker and like, mm. you know, stand up comedy and a keynote all at the same time. And yeah. for me, that's like, I'm totally on and that's awesome. But I have an operator who runs at 10,000 feet alongside me and she has all the, her superpowers or things that I don't have. And, you know, when I talk about this 30,000 visionary level and the thousand foot is like the executor level, this is like where your team is maybe, you know, making those donor phone calls or, or writing emails at your for-profit company or doing sales outreach or whatever. Those are a thousand foot executors. And your goal maybe as a visionary is to define where you're headed and to determine what are the three top priorities to help you get there. But the magic happens at 10,000 feet. That's where somebody turns your vision into action and connects the two. And it can be done with a person and probably with a person and frameworks. So like the BAU framework, like the utilization framework, we have another thing called a project backlog where we just score all the crap that has to get done by impact mm -hmm. and effort. But it's that identifying where are you... A, 30,000 foot thinker? Are you a 10,000 foot operator? Are you a 1,000 foot executor? And truly, the best leaders will be able to create a culture where none of those roles are any more valuable than the rest. We simply wouldn't yeah. even exist if it weren't for our executors who are writing copy, building out landing pages, placing UTM yeah. parameters, right? But like they wouldn't, wouldn't really know where to focus if it wasn't for me kind of defining where our market is going and then in between we wouldn't even have a project work plan right and they wouldn't feel nurtured right without yeah. without in my case my bobby but um i think it's important for people to figure out which of those they are and where do their skill sets lie and you can do things like strength finder and enneagram and um you know myers briggs we do all of those things and kind of a combination of them on our team okay to try and identify where yeah where are you? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. I mean, that's, that's great advice. And I think it's a good reminder for folks who've done it already too. So well, yeah. Matt, congrats on the book, the high growth nonprofit. Um, you know, I'm excited for you to, you know, I've been around people who've written books and they always say the same thing. It takes longer. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's just, just getting out in the world is I think a huge accomplishment and, you know, I enjoyed it when I went through it. So, uh, where can people Thank find you. more about the book and, you know, yeah, too. well, we're giving this book away to all nonprofits. So yeah. And for profit, if you're on a board or anything like that, you can go to cosmic.com forward slash book, C-A-U-S-E-M-I-C.com forward slash nice. book. And yeah, if you're listening to this before April 11, 2023, We've got a um, we've got an event. We're giving away the book. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's okay. 
Amazon package, maybe that's <laughs> that, that's the book. That's the book arriving somewhere. No, just kidding. <laughs> We've got the first part of that sound, but I don't know. This might be a second. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was um, so good. <laughs> that might actually be a really funny cut. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Keep so on. In. On April 11th, we've got a book uh, event, and I'm going to be, you know, talking about how to grow your organization despite economic uncertainty. And people yeah. can get a free copy there too. All at cosmic.com. Awesome, Matt. Great to reconnect, and thanks for being on the show. So, um, you know, congrats again on the book. Thank you. I appreciate it. The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of That Cast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well.